Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, the book of Matthew, chapter 7, the second continuation. Matthew chapter 7 concludes the Sermon on the Mount that began in chapter 5. Now, I'm hoping that by this point, a better understanding is being gained about the context and the intent of Yeshua's long speech, a context that has been improperly stated for centuries. Now, the context advocated by institutional Christianity as early as the fourth century is that the Sermon on the Mount was the event whereby Christ abolished the law of Moses and replaced it with a law of Jesus. However, an intellectually honest and in a straightforward reading of those three chapters tells us a different story. The true context is an extended teaching on the biblical Torah that Yeshua made before a large crowd of mostly Holy Land Jews. His clear intent is not only to separate God's Word from um, man-made traditions and incorrect or perhaps incomplete interpretations, but also to instruct His people on the reality that the Kingdom of Heaven has arrived, and therefore God's Biblical instructions must be taken in that light. <clears throat> now, for most of the Jews who heard it and, and took that teaching to heart, including the Twelve Disciples, by the way, this meant to them that the end of days was nearly upon them. And the urgency of the Twelve Disciples in a, uh, is very apparent within the writings of Peter and John and, and, and later on Paul. Later, in another setting, Yeshua will teach a series of parables that attempts to flesh out what the Kingdom of Heaven is like, and therefore how this impacts people from both a spiritual and an earthly physical standpoint. Now, Christ anticipates that not only will several in the crowd doubt the veracity of some of his of what he's teaching, but also that there will be people who will come along afterwards to try and, and undo or perhaps slander the truths that he taught. Sort of the first century version of fake news. Therefore, in verse 15, Jesus speaks a warning about the coming of false prophets, the producers of the fake news, and describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. That is, these wolves are not Jewish religious leaders who are attempting to rightly teach the Hebrew Bible, but have misunderstood some of it. Rather, these are religious leaders and zealots, at first Jews, and then later within a few years Gentiles, who masquerade as one thing, but are actually another. Their tradecraft is deception. But what's more, these wolves will not be terribly easy to identify. 
because the sheep's clothing they wear is that of pious Jews who attend synagogues, who do the rituals, and at least outwardly they obey the law of Moses. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start reading at verse 15 and go on to the end. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, is page 1231. One, two, three, one. Starting at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they are hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, or a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Now not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Well, then I'll tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a sensible man who built his house on bedrock. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew and beat against that house. But it didn't collapse because its foundation was on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a stupid man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was horrendous. When Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the way he taught. For he was not instructing like their Torah teachers, but as one who had authority himself. Now, last time we discussed exactly what a prophet was and was not in Yeshua's day. Rather than go go over it again, I'll just briefly sum it up. First, we must not think in terms of Old Testament prophets, nearly all of whom operated in concert with one king of Israel or another. Second, in general, we also must not think in terms of a prophet who brings a new and different oracle from God, that is, they come saying, thus says the Lord. And third, whereas God at times showed an Old Testament prophet a glimpse of the future, that was no longer the case by Yeshua's time, except perhaps for John, who penned Revelation. Now, Jews believed that the canon of the Bible was closed. There was no new writings that should be seen on the level of inspiration as the Hebrew Bible that had had no additions in about four centuries. So a so-called New Testament prophet was essentially a Bible teacher. They taught on what already existed. They were Jewish religious teachers who advocated for and interpreted 
God's Word. Still in the realm of what we today might call a pastor or a rabbi. I think Paul would, after his encounter with the risen Christ, epitomize what people in his day would call a prophet. Now, some of the prophets more pushed the agendas and the traditions of their particular group or beliefs. <clears throat> so false prophets were those who misled people and they did not teach the truth. The highly negative expression of a wolf in sheep's clothing was thoroughly understood in Jewish culture and likely throughout Roman culture as well since it was first created and written down in the 6th century BC as one of Aesop's fables. So it is not that Yeshua created a new expression, but rather He made use of a common one. It is only that He applies it to false prophets who come to dash the faith and steal the souls of God's people. Now this brings up one other thing. Clearly to Yeshua and to Matthew, <clears throat> false prophets were a, were a problem in their day. This was not a theoretical, this was not a hypothetical issue. Mark, Peter, and John, they all spoke about the problem. And we find it discussed in the Didache. Because these false prophets disguised themselves as sheep. That is, one of God's people who is honest, gentle, and of the faith. So it can be quite difficult to know which prophets are worth listening to and which should be avoided. See, they didn't wear name tags. Therefore, in verse 16, Christ tells his followers how to distinguish. Who are true prophets like Paul, Peter, and John? And who are false prophets? And they can do this from their outward appearance. I want to stress that this is about outward appearances. We have no practical way to know what is in a person's mind. That is, we need some kind of a means to learn what lies under that sheepskin. Christ's method is, is rather simple. You will know them by their fruit. Now, knowing them by their fruit means to identify them according to what they do. If it does not mean to identify them by their success or their lack of success, according to earthly standards. Now I want to put this in modern, stark terms. It does not mean that if a pastor presides over a growing 10,000-person church, then this is proof positive he must be a true prophet. So, in reverse, therefore a pastor of a small 50-person church must be a false prophet. It also doesn't mean that if a Bible teacher is wealthy and sells tons of books, that that is proof that he is a true prophet, but a Bible teacher who is poor and just scraping by then must be a false prophet. 
nor in both of these examples is the opposite true. The term fruit first and foremost means spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit that manifests itself in deeds and works, whether these are of evil or of good character. Now, good spiritual fruit does not mean only the things that we can't see and are manifest only in heaven. It means the kind of fruit that is in line with God's will and is based on His truth and His instructions to us. It means the righteous things that we do on earth that result from a Holy Spirit-driven intent and motive. So next Christ gives us some simple examples from nature about how all this works. Now notice how Christ constantly uses nature to help explain the the complex and the ethereal. This is because the same creator of the ethereal also created the physical. So while in one sense the ethereal and the physical are two different realms, in another sense they are both cut from the same cloth. So the God principles that govern both realms operate on the same basis. So the natural physical realm that surrounds us all, a realm we humans are built to perceive, serves as a good illustration and explanation of the ethereal realm, which we cannot see, we cannot touch, we can't hear it with our human senses. Now there's another good reason to use the natural world to explain the supernatural. It remains true no matter how much time passes, no matter the culture. That is, time, place, and language doesn't change the realities. It doesn't change the truth of it. Therefore, neither do the realities and truth of how to spot a religious snake in the grass posing as a harmless little bunny rabbit. And what Yeshua proposes is, we make our judgment about those prophets based mostly on what we see them do. However, even this makes a big assumption. You know what that assumption is? That we know God's Word well enough to know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and evil, what is false and true. This is why Christ spent some hours instructing the crowd in the correct interpretation of God's Torah prior to telling them how to recognize a false prophet. Now the first example of how a member of the congregation of God is to judge the fruit of a prophet is to state the obvious from nature. A thorn bush, a useless thing that can harm you, cannot produce edible and delicious grapes, and a stickery bunch of thistles 
another useless and bothersome thing, cannot produce edible and delicious figs. The grapes and figs are symbolic of righteous things. But perhaps the deeper principle is what we can call like for like. Light produces illumination, dark produces darkness, evil produces wickedness, good produces righteousness. Like for like. It can't be otherwise. In some ways, I find it interesting that Christ continues on with this line of thought because it's awfully simple, it's very self evident. His was hardly a complex or a new thought. Yet he continues on. Why? Because as human beings, we have this tendency to at times overcomplicate matters and to find ways around things that are clearly questionable or even obviously wrong, but we'd rather not face it because we get some kind of benefit from it. I want to put it in terms that at some point most adult Christians have faced personally, or at least they've heard about it. A pastor who is dearly loved by his congregation does wrong things, but he's given a pass because he is someone who is so loved and revered that the congregation feels that he can't be so bad as to not be believed and followed. We've all heard of a pastor who has stolen from his church or who has committed adultery and maybe even molested a child. And yet, sometimes immediately the congregation will rush to his defense, declare him forgiven, and then just blindly move on, ready to continue to believe his every utterance about God's Word. There is no better example of ignoring Christ's like for like principle than this. That is the inherent inability of a thistle to produce figs. And lest Jesus' listeners get too caught up in the specifics and think that Christ is saying that this principle only applies to certain situations, he expands upon it to the nearly universal by saying, likewise, a healthy tree produces good fruit and a poor tree produces bad fruit. In other words, his first examples used cases from nature where wild bushes are not fruit-bearing under any circumstance. They're not like for like. Who would go searching through a thorn bush to find some grapes? You wouldn't, I wouldn't, not even a child would think to do that. No one would do it because it's not like for like. Thus, the lesson is this don't overlook the obvious, don't dismiss what is right before your face. We today say it in a different way. If it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, 
and it talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And yet there are those who will look at the duck and see a swan. Let me give you an extreme, but a very real example, example of this. Adolf Hitler. Hitler was early on in his political career an obvious tyrant and monster. And yet he professed Christianity. And because the Lutheran Church was so prominent in Germany, and because it was overtly anti-Semitic in its theology, Hitler claimed that it was his godly duty to, among other things, rid the world of the Christ-killers, the Jews. Therefore the Lutheran Church supported him, as did at first the Catholic Church, and for similar reasons. But now in verses 17 and 18, we're dealing with the less obvious. We're dealing with something that at first glance is a like-for-like situation. We have fruit trees doing what God designed them to do, bear fruit. And yet everyone knows that not all fruit trees produce good fruit. Some of them fail at what they were designed to do. The fruit appears as expected, but it never fully develops or it develops what appears to be normally, so it, but it doesn't taste good. The problem is that the average person will not know whether the fruit is good or bad until they do what? They pick it and they taste it. Therefore this is an even more dangerous situation than the first example of the thorn bushes and the thistles. So the illustration that a poor tree, a poorly developed tree, can't produce tasty fruit and a well-developed tree can't produce inedible fruit and, and, and vice versa. So here we have the like-for-like like principle applies, but it's a little more nuanced. See this is not a new thought. We find it first in what is thought to be the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. In Job 14.4, who can bring what is pure from something impure? No one. Later on in the Bible, in John, 1 John 3.9, no one who has God as his father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by God remains in him. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as his Father. Now I want to challenge you a little bit while I preach a little bit. Should we take Christ's and Job's and John's statement to mean that a kind of rigid predetermination has taken place in that the human realm is divided into two parts, and those that inhabit, inhabit each part can never change their minds? They can never cross over into the other. Did Yeshua mean that a poor tree can never become a good tree? Or that a good tree can never cease to be a good tree? This is no, no small matter. Because essentially that is the basis for Calvinism. 
the early church father Chrysostom thought deeply about this troubling matter and concluded the following in his commentary on the book of Matthew. He said this, Christ saith not this, that for the wicked there's no way to change, or that the good cannot fall away, but so long as he is living in wickedness, he will not be able to bear good fruit. For he may indeed change to virtue, being evil, but while continuing in wickedness, he will not bear good fruit. See, I fully agree with Chrysostom's statement. We must not take Yeshua's statements where he is using natural examples for spiritual principles as absolutes or as soul-determining factors, but rather they are meant as generalizations. Wicked people can change, as can good people change. Maybe we should think of these statements in a similar way as we would a proverb. That is, we know that a proverb represents a good rule of thumb by which to live our lives. But there can be exceptions, so it's not necessarily true 100% of the time. And the same goes for the summation Christ offers in verse 20 so you will know them by their fruits. But before he offers that summation, he says something that ought to always be at the forefront of our thoughts and of our actions. It is that fruit trees that don't produce good fruit get cut down and burned up. Now being in Florida in citrus country, this fact is abundantly evident. because. Some of the citrus trees planted in large orchards just never give off the tasty fruit expected, so they are literally cut down and burned up. Yeshua is speaking of judgment, or better, the final judgment. To be clear, this is an end times judging that is being spoken about. It doesn't mean that a false prophet or someone who doesn't produce good fruit will necessarily experience a divinely orchestrated calamity during their life as a consequence. But it does allude to the idea that all who follow Christ are expected to produce good fruit. And therefore those who don't produce good fruit are counterfeits. Now remember, Good fruit is evidence of righteousness, and bad fruit or no fruit is the evidence of a counterfeit follower. Now, naturally, everyone won't produce the same fruit, nor in the same quantity. Rather, it will be according to what our individual gifts and talents are, and also according to God's explicit will and purpose for our lives. So, believers, are you producing fruit? Is it good fruit? Or are you perhaps producing no fruit at all? A fruit tree that produces no fruit is just as subject to judgment as one that produces bad fruit. 
And we, we must also face that some false prophets are going to be so good at deceiving that they may never be found out or they won't be found out until it's too late. I think it would could be that they eventually convince themselves that they are true prophets, thus falling into a, 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 a trap that has been built in their own deception. David Koresh, the leader of that strange religious cult in Waco, Texas, whose teaching and actions eventually cost so many lives, might be a good example of this variety of a false prophet. Going back a bit further into the late 1970s, another false prophet named Jim Jones led over 900 people, including himself, into a mass murder-suicide. Now, while I don't want to take this too far, I think what we're all concerned with is fruit in the religious context. So in the religious context of our lives, and I use the term religious loosely, can we really always know from their deeds when a pastor or a rabbi is telling God's truth and with a pure motive as a true prophet? I want to give you an example of what I mean that is in the mainstream Christian sphere. Over the centuries, the Christian faith has been severely permeated with false teachings and erroneous doctrines. I would say that as profoundly scholarly as was Martin Luther, his deeply embedded prejudice against Jews could not be contained as merely personal. It spilled over into especially his later writings about his faith. And so the large church denomination that evolved from his breaking away from the Catholic Church naturally adopted his teachings. They adopted the beliefs of their namesake. At the core of these teachings is a not-so-subtle anti-Jewish settlement that colors many long-standing Lutheran doctrines in ways their congregations often fail to recognize. Those doctrines remove Israel and the Jews as God's precious treasures and transfers all that over to a Gentile Christianity. It divorces the Jews from their homeland, Israel. It makes Christ as not really Jewish, but rather as some kind of a generic everyman. It makes Jehovah the Old Testament God of the Jews and Christ the New Testament God of the Gentile church and so much more. So was Luther a poor tree bearing poor fruit? Was he a good tree that bore good fruit, but then also some bad? How can we know? In Luther's time, and for a long time afterward, Bibles were hard to come by for the common man, most of whom were in the Gentile world of his day. They, they couldn't read it anyway. So perhaps the common man, who had little to go on for what the Bible actually said, other than what their pastors taught them, maybe they could get a pass. 
But how about today? How about for the past hundred years or more in the West, when Bibles have been readily available at a price ranging from affordable to free, does not the modern common man have the means at our fingertips to read the Bible and to learn for ourselves what constitutes God's instructions versus what men, past or present, claim? The fact that so many blatantly false doctrines are still taught as biblical truth from pulpits and then accepted without hesitation as truth from congregations ought to tell us that relatively few people are interested enough to seek out the truth in the Bible, to test what they're being told. And so often, even when they might discover the written truth in the Bible that contradicts what they're being told, they continue supporting and being part of the congregation and denomination that continues to spew falsehoods because it's embedded into their long-held traditions. Are these among the false prophets that Jesus speaks about? You see, the onus is on us to go further than merely invoking generalizations like, you know them by their fruit. How do I know what good fruit is? How do I know what bad fruit is if I'm not instructed in the matter? It's not as though I know it as an instinct that I'm born with. Rather, such knowledge must be acquired. And if I don't actively acquire the knowledge of God's Word, then I can't spot a false prophet by their outward appearance in the form of their deeds, which in the end revolves around what they teach, which is what prophets do. And just as much, I can easily encounter a true prophet and then reject him as false if all I know are man-made doctrines. I can hear the truth, but insist on measuring that against the falsehoods I've been taught, and if it doesn't match what I've always thought was truth, I might reject it and label him as the false prophet. See, Yeshua, as the truest of prophets, would go on to suffer slander and accusations of being a false prophet. And that had much to do with why he was executed. Now we come to perhaps one of the hardest few verses in the book of Matthew. Now I want to read them again before we discuss before we discuss them. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. 
Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is another of those biblical passages that is controversial and it is spun in any number of ways, often so that it conforms to some predetermined doctrines. Now, from the 30,000 foot view, we see that Jesus says there is a segment of Jewish society that he will reject and he will bar from entering the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, Jesus is the gatekeeper to the kingdom. He makes the determination about who enters and who shut out. I think it is appropriate to expand that rejected segment to the Gentile community as well because the followers of Yeshua expanded their range and evolved from nearly all Jewish to nearly all Gentile. Now, the question about this segment of society is, what is their spiritual status? Are they non-believers in Christ? Are they those who profess Christ but in reality are pretenders and counterfeits? Or are they actual believers but they have failed to carry out their obligations as part of Yeshua's flock? How a denomination answers those questions will have much to do with how others of their faith doctrines are constructed. Perhaps the most pertinent part of the first few words of verse 21 is to understand what Yeshua means when he says that not everyone will call him, not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are a few possibilities, but the way Luke has it phrased, I think, puts a finer point on it. Luke says it this way in uh, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? I think that sums it up best. In other words, if you don't follow what Christ teaches, how can you turn around and call yourself a follower? A follower, by definition, follows what their master teaches and then the example of how he lives his life. Essentially, we have a Hebrew oxymoron developed here. It fits in with the statement back in chapter 6, verse 24, that no one can be a slave to two masters which is itself an oxymoron. He is not saying you are not a follower. He is asking a rhetorical question to the crowd, something to make them think. Some Bible commentators see him as speaking about false prophets. I don't. Certainly they might be included within this group that's going to be rejected from the kingdom. But they don't form the whole group, not even the bulk of it. Using a little bit of common sense. Why would anyone call Yeshua Lord if they don't claim membership to his group of followers? To use Christian terms, only those who are part of the church would refer to Jesus as Lord. 
And while technically the term Lord, which is kurios in Greek or Adon or Adonai in Hebrew, it's a rather generic term for showing respect. It's, it's like saying sir. Yeshua was a common blue collar worker in his day. And such a title certainly would not have been used of him except in how it was meant in the religious context. That said, we should not think that at this moment, beyond what has happened thus far, that, that's, that, that Yeshua was thought to be the Messiah. He had not yet publicly claimed to be the Messiah. He had not publicly claimed to be the Son of God. So those who determined to follow Yeshua would have seen him as their chosen religious leader. John the Baptist also had his following, as did several venerated rabbis such as Shammai and Hillel. Lord, in the sense of master, would have been a common way of addressing all of these men I'm talking about. Still, even before his public announcement, he did drop hints of his uniqueness and of a relationship with the Father that went beyond being but one of the many who worshipped him, and thus in Jewish colloquial expression called God, our Father. So, says Christ, don't call me your master if you don't follow the ways I've laid out for you. Now, that's logical, isn't it? It's rational. Rather, a point of common sense, really. But there's another element to this response that in hindsight, only in hindsight, can we understand. The element is Yeshua's role as Savior. I'm going to say it again. At the time of the Sermon on the Mount, being Savior was not yet publicly put forward. We of course can look back. We can see through some of the things that Jesus said and then on into a deeper meaning because we have the advantage not only of retrospect but also we have the recorded history of the revelations of his identity that Christ eventually made, some of which even after he made them many Jews still didn't understand. So knowing now what we know from his later pronouncements and from the writings of Peter and Paul and John who followed Yeshua, we could rightfully make verse 21 read, now hear this, we could make it read, not everyone who says to me, Savior, Savior, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty sobering. The point being that knowing his true identity, knowing his mission, and merely calling upon his name does not save, nor does it indicate someone who is saved. Perhaps not in Jewish society so much, but throughout Roman society, calling on the names of various gods for various purposes, well, that was common. It was customary. It's done a thousand times a day. So if someone wanted something from the God of the Jews, 
then they could decide that perhaps this, this Jesus fellow, this Jesus fellow, maybe that's the right name to use to get God's attention, and then they could get their petition fulfilled. At the same time, but again and now in retrospect, clearly by now, if he hadn't earlier, Jesus knew what and who he was. He was to be judge at the end of days to determine who would be ushered into the eternal kingdom of heaven and who would not be allowed in. But let me also say that this is a two-stage process. The kingdom of heaven had arrived with the appearance of John the Baptist, so those who would trust Christ as Savior would be immediately made part of the really the fledgling kingdom on earth, such as it was. Now, you who today trust Messiah Yeshua, you are right now part of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And yet, it is a kingdom that's still developing towards its complete fulfillment that will not happen until Yeshua returns to us. So the kingdom is for the earthbound now and for the eternal bound later. So if calling on Yeshua's name is not how one enters the kingdom, then what is? The first requirement, says Christ, he says it plainly, only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. Notice the term, my Father. Right there, Yeshua dropped a big hint that no doubt some in the crowd noticed, and especially so his twelve disciples. The correct term that a Hebrew could sometimes use to refer to God was Avinu, our Father, but never my Father. The term Avinu was even used sometimes to refer to Abraham. The point being that Christ went from acknowledging a national relationship with Yehovah to a direct familial relationship. God literally was Jesus' Father. So no matter how we want to translate those words, Jesus sets down a requirement that goes well beyond some public declaration of allegiance to Him. In fact, the real allegiance, He says, must be to Jesus' Father. And even more than an allegiance, a follower must be a doer. Yes, believers, this means that that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling we get about trusting Christ is not sufficient. We have to be active. We must seek the will of the Father and then carry it out. And that will, that, that, that will goes far beyond the event of our salvation. Clearly, the biological brother of Yeshua, Yaakov, better known in our Bibles as James, got this message loud and clear, and he understood its great significance. 
James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such a faith able to save him? See, Yeshua's response to that rhetorical question of James would have been, no, it's not. It is not that good works brings on salvation. It is that the evidence of salvation brings on good works. And by good works, I mean righteous deeds that have been motivated by the will of the Father. Only a faith accompanied with righteous deeds, according to Christ, is an authentic faith. Verse 22 continues the thought with this in Matthew 7.22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? Now the term that day is a Hebrew expression that means the day of judgment, also called the day of the Lord. All those terms were used for it. It is that day that every human will have to present an account of their life to God and then bear the consequences or the rewards for it. And here we see Yeshua essentially claiming a status as God's agent to be the judge of that. No doubt the people sitting before Christ caught that. Some would have accepted it. And the majority would have scoffed and grumbled at such a thought. So the context and the setting for the straw man that's pleading his case with Yeshua is that he is standing before the great judge at the end of days. And his claim for acceptance into the kingdom is that he prophesied, expelled demons, and performed miracles in Yeshua's name. Once again, acts and deeds are not the determining proof of our salvation. You see, there's always been considerable disagreement over what it means to do things in Christ's name. You know, it could mean a number of things. First, it could, might mean in Yeshua's authority and power. Second, it might mean that if one can do similar things to what Christ did, then perhaps that person is Christ returned. Third, perhaps it is that false prophets and counterfeits use Christ's name merely to gain access to believing congregations. Fourth, maybe as do the pagans, Jesus' name gets used like a magic word or like an incanta uh, incantation. It is my view, actually it means all these things. It means using his name for whatever false or perverse purpose one might have. And clearly in verse 22, those who are teaching in Christ's name and expelling demons in his name and performing miracles in his name do so for one of those perverse reasons. Because in truth, real followers of Christ are encouraged, are we not, to teach, expel demons, and do miracles in His name. So it is not that there is something wrong in the doing of these three deeds. It's the motive. 
It's the intent of the doer that can be wicked. Christ's response to this question from the straw man is terrifying. In Matthew 7, 23, he says, Then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. At the great judgment, the great judge, Christ, will reject those who plead their cases in such a way. Yeshua knows their hearts and minds. Can't fool him. He refuses to grant them entry into the fulfilled kingdom of heaven. But when he speaks of workers of lawlessness, much of the institutional church nearly has a heart attack. Or they just kind of read by this and pay a little attention. But this verse connects, you see, back to earlier in his sermon at chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Now remember, what's the subject? The subject is entry into the kingdom of heaven and all of its prerequisites. The Greek word used here for lawlessness is anomia. anomia. Now, the King James Version prefers to use the term iniquity. The NAB says evildoers. Why choose those words that seem to deviate from a literal translation. The Greek word for law is nomia and nomos. And so the word for having no law is anomia. But acknowledging this, oh, that opens up a can of worms. Because what law can Jesus be talking about except? the Torah law, the law of Moses. He obviously isn't talking about just any kind of secular law whereby somebody breaks one of those laws. He doesn't mean Roman law. The only law that matters because it affects a believer's eternal eternal status is God's law, as he made so very clear earlier on in his sermon back in chapter 5, and then specifically as it connects to a person's place in the kingdom of heaven. And what did he say? Matthew 5, 17 through 19, Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So chapter 7, verse 22, closes the circle and it settles the matter. Lawlessness for Jesus is Torahlessness. It is trying to operate 
outside of God's written commandments. Entrance to the kingdom of heaven requires more than calling on Christ's name. It requires obedience to God's Torah, and we're going to explore that matter much further next time.